Sergeant Stadenko, exactly what are you looking for? Dope, drugs, weed, grass, toot, smack, quackers, uppers, downers, all arounders, you name it, we want it. You want to call something a crisis? We have the prohibition crisis because a lot of this drug use would be a whole lot safer if it was in an open legal market as opposed to in the underground. Welcome to The Social Exchange. Today I spoke with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Dr. Singer is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and he works in the Department of Health Policy Studies. He is principal and founder of Valley Surgical Clinics, the largest and oldest group private surgical practice in Arizona. Dr. Singer writes and speaks extensively on regional and national public policy with a specific focus on the areas of healthcare policy, the harmful effects of drug prohibition, and how harm reduction can help. We talked about all these concepts today and more. We hope you enjoy. I'm here with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Jeff, thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. Before we jump into a conversation, I'm sure that we'll be rich with topics of addiction, harm reduction, any other topics we decide to touch. Will you just start us off with a, a brief bio? Who is Jeffrey Singer, and, and how did you become so involved in discussions about these topics? Well, I'm a, a, a practicing general surgeon in Phoenix, Arizona. I've been in private practice there uh, for close to 40 years. I'm originally, you probably could tell by my accent, I'm originally from New York. Yeah, that's not an Arizona accent. <laughs> not an Arizona accent. I grew up in New York City. I went to undergraduate school there. I went to medical school there, but I wanted to, to settle in the West that had a kind of romantic attraction to me, particularly the, the scenery and landscape and folklore. So I settled in Phoenix uh, and I started a practice, became board certified in general surgery and started a uh, practice here. The city was much smaller than it is now. So I watched it grow and I grew my practice so that over the years I started as a solo surgeon and I've got a couple of partners. And now oh, we have a very large group surgical practice. We're all general surgeons. There are, I think, about 11 of us now last, at last count, mm. plus a physician's assistant and nurse practitioner. And to my knowledge, we're the largest group private general surgical practice in the state of Arizona. I've always had an interest in public policy and political philosophy, even since my undergraduate days. And uh, I've always identified with libertarianism before there was a libertarian party, even, for example, back uh, in the early 70s. And so uh, as I got more free time in my life, I started getting involved in public policy. And for several years, I was an adjunct at the Cato Institute, which is, I call it global freedom headquarters. It's probably mm -hmm. the preeminent libertarian think tank in the world. And they're not just confined to domestic policy issues. It's a, a, the global with the global issues. And uh, uh, then a few years ago, as my I reached the point in my life when I, I, I wanted intentionally to, to scale back my practice and scale up my involvement in public policy. So um, I, I'm only working a few days a week now in, in my surgical practice and I have an arrangement with my partner. So I sort of like uh, 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 the law firm equivalent would be if I'm sort of like of counsel. So I'm mm -hmm. only there a few days a week. And the rest of the time I'm working uh, in public policy. I'm a senior fellow now at the Cato Institute, not an adjunct. Uh, and I'm in the Department of Health Policy Studies. So obviously because of my background, I have an interest in a lot of areas that intersect with health policy from, you know, health system reform to FDA reform to to Anything basically comes under the under that uh, umbrella 
Um, it, it seemed natural for me as a, I'm a clinician, I prescribe narcotics to my patients in pain, both acute and chronic pain. And uh, I have a knowledge as a doctor, not just uh, in, in, in pharmacology, but in, in how patients deal with pain. And I, I've dealt with a lot of patients who have tragic situations. So there are people who work at the Cato Institute in the area of, of uh, drug policy reform way before I arrived. Cato has been involved in this and uh, this has been a major issue for Cato since they opened their doors in 1977. But it, it sort of made sense that now that they have an actual practicing clinician on their staff, that this would be, you know, that I'd be given a lot to work with in this in this area. And it's probably it couldn't get more be more of a hot topic right now. So it turns out that it's consumed a tremendous amount of my public policy research over the last few years. It's, I'm, I'm definitely spending the majority of my, my work in this area. This topic found you. You didn't necessarily go searching for it. I would say that that's probably uh, fair to say. I mean, I've always had an interest in it. I've always had opinions in it. But when I decided to get involved uh, in a full-time way in public policy research, this, this became the, the topic. It sort of, yeah, it sort of found me. Well, let's dive in. You're a surgeon in Arizona. You're a senior fellow at Cato, and you've also become something, I think, of a prolific writer. And I've been really enjoying, for example, your blogs and articles centered around addiction and harm reduction, as well as decriminalization and also the recent litigation around pharmaceutical companies. I think that is particularly cogent and refreshingly so. So if you don't mind, I'd just like to start by putting a frame around some of these things and see if we can agree on a definition of a term that will probably show up in each of these domains, addiction. Uh, tell me, by by your way of thinking, what is addiction and, and what isn't it? Well, as a, as a physician trained according to the, you know, the medical school dogma, I was originally led to believe, that, which is probably still probably the predominant view by most healthcare practitioners, at least, you know, medical doctors, um, that uh, addiction is, uh, it's, it's almost when your brain has become hijacked by this particular substance or activity. Uh, the, the, the definition, the official definition is compulsive use or engagement in the, in the activity despite negative consequences so that you're aware that it's, it's doing a lot of harm to your life, but you can't stop it. Uh, as I've dug into the subject over the last few years, and done a lot of reading from other people, including people like you, I've come to see that that's an inadequate explanation. And it's really not the substance that in any way hijacks the brain. I've come to to, uh, to share the views of, uh, of you, Stanton Peel, Maya Salvis, and others, that it's more of a of a learning disorder. It's a, it's, a, it's a coping mechanism. It's an automatized coping mechanism. And whether we're talking about, um, you know, addiction to gambling or shopping addiction or overeating uh, or alcohol, it, it, these are uh, the reason these particular activities or substances have a different, uh, uh, a different effect over some people, the people we define as addicts, as opposed to everyone else who engages in, in the use of those substances or activities, is because they've kind of learned to use this as a way of coping with certain stresses. I've also learned, and this is this is compatible with the, the, the official medical teaching also, that the great majority, well, there is you know a significant genetic 
component to addiction. Uh, not everybody, but there's a significant contribution of, of genetics. But virtually everyone has some sort of history of trauma during during their developmental period. Um, and then usually that uh, there's also a very significant uh, incidence of, of other psych psychoneurologic comorbidities, anything like ranging from ADHD to the autism spectrum to OCD. There's a whole range of these things. So it's complicated. First of all, there's no simple explanation for any one person. But, you know, in, in the three by five card bullet point way of looking at it, you have people who have uh, have had trauma. Uh, in many cases, they have underlying uh, psycho, psychological or neurological or psychoneurological comorbidities. Uh, they may have genetic predispositions so that they have more of a, of a tendency to go a certain way. And then they get introduced to the particular activity or substance, and it starts to take on a different role in their life than it does in the other people uh, with whom they may be engaging in that activity. And that's addiction. So um, the other thing that I've learned is, it's, it, 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 I didn't learn, it's kind of obvious, that it's really interesting that society is much more empathetic and tolerant of certain types of addictions than others. So, for example, even though um, you know, most healthcare practitioners would advise people against tobacco smoking because it can create a lot of health problems, nevertheless, they're much more, uh, they, they, they don't look at people who are addicted to nicotine and can't stop themselves from, from smoking tobacco. They don't look at them as evil, uh, as depraved, uh, yet... Uh, and they, they actually, you know, uh, in most cases, you know, feel for them. They don't say, don't treat their COPD, don't don't treat their asthma, don't don't do anything about their lung cancer. They deserve this. If you treat that, then you're just enabling other them and other people to keep smoking tobacco. They don't do that. They feel terrible for what what's happened, and they try to help them. But then, when, with other kind of particular substances such as cocaine or heroin, opioids in general. Um, we don't seem to have that that attitude. We, same thing with alcohol. There's so many people uh, among us that uh, have an alcohol problem, um, and many times we suspect that maybe they're people who we live with or love, or maybe they're coworkers too. We just suspect they show up for work and they smell from alcohol. Or they're, they're certainly not under the influence when they when they arrive for work. Um, and uh, maybe if we care about them, we talk to them about it, but they want us to back away. And we, as long as it's not interfering with, with their performance uh, or their relationships with us, we don't consider them evil. We care about them. We consider them as people. But then other substances, these are not people. These are evil. These are people we cannot enable. We cannot help them because they're bad. I think there's a large racial component to that. I think it's obvious. If you look at the history of uh, prohibition, drug prohibition in this country, it's almost always been with, started with, with uh, drugs that are associated with minorities or people in, in the margins of, of the mainstream of society. So uh, that, that's obvious as well. So you see a lot of, uh, a lot of these kind of um, inconsistencies in the way uh, a modern American society approaches people who have uh, what we would call addictions. But I, so that, that's the way I, I've come to look at it is you're not, 
you're not hijacked by this activity or this drug. You're using it in a way that is hurting you. And so therefore, if we want to, uh, also another thing that I've learned over the years is that uh, almost all of, a great majority of the harms that are rendered on people who are engaging in the use of substances that are illicit are a result of the fact that they're illicit. Mm. Prohibition. We just learned that we're just learning that now, you know, in the news right now about vaping. All of a sudden, all we see, can't turn on the news any day without hearing a story about how people are uh, reporting terrible lung diseases using vaping. But now we learn almost every case we can find so far relates to people who bought their their um, the media that they're vaping with in the underground illegal market rather than through the legal market. Yeah. So. You know, when 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 people whether or not you have a, a tobacco addiction or alcohol addiction, if you go to the store to buy a package of cigarettes, you're not concerned that it could be laced with fentanyl or some other toxic substance. Or when you go to the, to the store to buy a, a you know a bottle of uh, let's say bourbon, uh, and if it says it's forty percent alcohol, you're not saying I wonder if they're lying to me and it's really ninety percent alcohol. And I wonder if it's really not made with, with corn. I wonder if it's got some arsenic in it. That never even occurs to us because it's legal. It's regulated in an open market. We have recourses, to, uh, legal recourses to take if, if, if it turns out we've been you know, harmed or defrauded. But when you're dealing with the, the underground market, you know, all bets are off. You don't know what you're getting. You're not sure of how much. And it's also even dangerous to share with one another you know, safety tips on how to use things. So a lot of the harm that we associate with a lot of the uh, use of illicit substances is directly related to the fact that it's illicit. So you've pointed a few things out there. I'll just I'll pick up on some of them. One is that largely our attitudes toward drugs, and I guess you could say we assign different drugs a moral uh, hierarchical value. And uh, that, that sort of, we work backwards to get there. So groups of people that we decided at one point in time or another that we value less, whatever drugs or substances they were doing, we decided that those drugs would be valued less on a moral level. And so, of course, that is an insidious way to be framing this whole thing. On the other hand, more technically speaking, a lot of people believe that different drugs could be classified hierarchically by their addictiveness so that some drugs are inherently more addictive than others. To what extent do you think that's right? And and how does that square or not with your own concept? Uh, there may be, I think there are drugs that are more addictive than others, but again, the addictiveness of it, I think, feels, it, it, it's, it's not that the drug has suddenly made you want to keep using it. The drug has created a certain um, experience that has served a role for you. That's why you, you constantly want to do it. And then eventually it becomes automatized. Now, again, I'm not a psychiatrist, mm. uh, but um, I, I like to come up with different, uh, my technique of trying to understand things is I try to come up with uh, sort of uh, things that help me understand it. So the way I like to understand it is uh, if a person, I think this is the way people, an average person can understand it. If a person has OCD and Part of their OCD is they can't step on a crack in the sidewalk. They have to constantly walk over the crack or, or, or else they feel like something terrible is going to happen. Um, and, well, that's sort of, again, that's, that's an automatized 
behavior. So let's say that person realized this is ridiculous. It's, uh, it's making me take extra long to get where I want to go. It's inconvenient. I got to stop doing this. So the next crack I come to, I'm going to step right on that crack. I'm just, I don't care the feeling I get. I'm going to make myself step on a crack. And then they, they just can't because they're just about to, but then they can't because they feel almost like something terrible is going to happen. To me, I look at addiction in a similar kind of light where there's something, uh, it's almost on a subconscious level. It's not operating on a conscious level where it's, it's making you want to do this again. Uh, and, you know, the, the, I think the goal uh, if, if people want to overcome their addiction, and that's another thing, by the way, I don't necessarily think we need to treat addiction unless the person wants to have their addiction treated. And there are a lot of people who accommodate their addiction to a, a productive life and a, a meaningful life. But let's say they, they, they realize that it's causing a lot of harm in their life and they want to do something about it. I think the most practical way is to try to, first of all, get it, get it. It's very difficult to ask that person to, to stop completely, to abstain because of what I just described, for example, in that uh, step on the crack analogy. So instead, if you, if you can do something like, uh, um, you know, a harm reduction technique, whether we're talking about uh, uh, medication assisted treatment or just moderation in use, those kind of things where you can get the person to kind of, engage in, in the activity in a safer way. And then you need to really kind of spend a lot of time trying to investigate what it is that is responsible, why, why this person needs to use these things, these, these uh, behaviors or substances to cope. What is it that's triggering it? What, and, when, and try to understand almost in an objective way, almost like you, you're outside of your own body looking at what's going on. Understand what's happening and then develop different tools to cope with, the, with what you've been coping with that is you, you don't want to use anymore. I think that's, that's the, the way to get there. But I also, for example, my, my field, surgery, uh, one of the icons of modern surgery, William Halstead, they call him the father of American surgery. He he uh, taught at Johns Hopkins and he worked into the late 1920s or so. Um, much of the technique we have to this day was developed by him. Several operations were developed by him. He actually invented the residency program that we still have today, the whole concept of residencies. Well, we know that he was a her uh, morphine addict for most of his productive life. He, it was kept uh, kind of quiet. The people who were close to him knew about it and they helped keep it. Uh, private and secret. It wasn't known until after he retired that for many, many years he was a, a morphine addict. He originally was a cocaine addict. Um, and uh, it was, I'm sure you're aware of this, back in the early 20th century, uh, uh, it was thought that you could treat cocaine addiction by replacing it with morphine addiction. Mm. So his colleagues at Johns Hopkins had a, a famous intervention with him. They took him on an ocean cruise because they could they saw his heavy cocaine use and they were concerned about him. And uh, he came back as a morphine addict. And, uh, and that, that's what he was until uh, he died at, at a ripe old age. And we learned about it afterwards. Um, and then recently there was a, uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about, I think it was in July, by Timothy, uh, Timothy McMahon King. Uh, he's got a book coming out right now called Addiction Nation, uh, in which he talked about 
uh, the famous British statesman William Wilberforce, who was largely responsible for ending the slave trade in, in, in Great Britain in the early uh, 19th century. And he was an opium addict. Um, and all of his friends and colleagues knew about it. But again, it was kept kind of quiet because there was a stigma attached. But there are many people uh, who uh, are not really having a problem with their addiction because they're able to, maybe because of their social status, their socioeconomic status, uh, the understanding of their, their, their friends, they're able to kind of keep it uh, quiet, avoid the stigma, and they don't really have any particular desire to end their addiction. They're, they're accommodating it. And I, I, I believe that, is, number one, it's not my right to compel that person to you know, treat their addiction if they don't want it. And, and, and number two, I believe that there are a lot of people who, you know, if they're, if they're comfortable with it, the only reason to want to treat the addiction is if they've determined that it's doing them harm and they don't want to do it anymore. We hope you're enjoying the show. Sorry for the interruption. Just want to remind you that the show is fully supported by you. Our show is funded wholly through the contributions of our listeners. We don't run ads and we refuse to run ads and we'll continue to be ad-free one way or another, but we hope that the way is that you will help us out. That doesn't mean necessarily donating any money. If you would like to support us for no cost at all, will you listen to us on iTunes or your respective podcast app and just leave us a rating or a review? And if you can afford it, if it's reasonable for you, become a patron. Visit patreon.com slash the social exchange for as little as $2 a month. You will have early access to every single one of our shows that are published and many other rewards. If you're thinking about donating, but you're not quite sure what this is all about, you can just check it out for free at patreon.com slash the social exchange. That's patreon.com slash the social exchange. Thank you to all of our new patrons, Sherry Chandler, Didi Stout, Christopher Hanlon, Omre Pompel, Rick Barnett, Inigo, and Earl John Layla Ferguson, Mary Kay Villaverde, Nancy Michelle Sean Holt, Regina Ferguson, Tim Tucker, Christian, Kathleen Cochran, Marjorie Israel, Diane T., Trevor, Tom and Linda Rhodes, and Susan Matthew. Thank you all so much for making this show possible. And if you want to join the list and you'd like to help support this show, please visit patreon.com slash the social exchange. Now enjoy the rest of this interview with Dr. Jeffrey Singer. Are you using the term addiction interchangeably with drug use in that scenario? Actually, I'm, I was meaning addiction, but mm. you could also use it in change with drug use because, as we all know, uh, I think was upwards of 80 to 90 percent of people who engage in the use of currently illicit drugs in their adult life don't become addicted. They, right. they just they use it socially and they, they don't develop any addiction problems. So you could use it in, in, either, in either sense, as far as I'm concerned, like uh, William Allstate or William Wilberforce. They were addicted. So I maybe don't want to linger too much on this because, as you said, there's a lot to unpack and you're pointing out some key inconsistencies with a standard narrative compared to what you and I are trying to have a, a more constructive conversation about. But if I could just do some sort of a Socratic kind of reflection. So on one hand, you're saying addiction is not only not limited to interactions with a drug, but whether a person becomes addicted is really contingent upon culture, temporal context. This isn't something that's written in the stars. And on the other hand, you are granting that 
there's a coherent claim to be made about a genetic predisposition. I mean, it's almost like on one hand, we're saying we could have a lucid and productive conversation about addiction without ever mentioning anything biomedical. And then on the other hand, we could talk about genetic predisposition. And this isn't necessarily a contradiction, but I wonder how you reconcile or just absorb these two different seemingly different ideas that you've just generated. I, I don't think they, they're contradictory. I, you know, I think the more we're learning the, uh, about genetics, we, mm-hmm. we're learning a lot of things are, you know, there's a certain way we're, we're wired. But that doesn't, it's, that doesn't take away free will. That they're just different people may have different tendencies or, uh, you know, traits where they, they have a predisposition to, to go a certain way, but that doesn't mean they're going to. It doesn't mean they don't have control over it. It just It's just one ingredient, one component. Yeah, yes, of course it's complicated. I don't want to get us stuck in like a genetic bog here. I just, I have, I would be interested if you want to go down the road, but um, otherwise, if you point me to literature, I haven't seen a really coherent claim about genetics in terms of uh, practical applications of genetic predisposition to something like addiction and how that you know, how we can do something meaningful that's helpful uh, around the problem. So I don't know if you have any examples of that. Well, or if it's... I'm, again, I'm influenced by the medical literature. Uh, sure, I don't have sure. any particular studies I can give you off the top of my head, but it, it, I, I've read numerous articles that, you know, their studies suggest uh, uh, anywhere from a 40% to maybe a, up to 60% genetic component uh, to addiction. But then there's a, at least you know, uh, 40 to 60% that don't have a genetic component. So it doesn't necessarily, they're not, it's not required. Well, let's see if we can apply any of this moving forward. There's plenty to discuss. The opioid crisis, we're both aware of this term and the narrative around it, and we both strongly disagree with the framing, I think. If I were a spokesperson for the narrative and had to give an elevator pitch, I might say something like, the existence of opioids and the accessibility of opioids is really the root of widespread drug harms, fatalities, and everything that's bad in our country. And not only that, but the reason for the the far-reaching availability of these harmful drugs is that unwise or else unscrupulous doctors have prescribed them en masse, and then they've, they have been for over a decade. And behind the curtain pulling all of the relevant evil levers are pharmaceutical industries who marketed the drugs to all of us. All the while knowing that that these harms <laughs> in such marketing uh, were going to be caused, there's a lot there, and we could pick up on the fragments and reframe along the way. But would you like to take a crack at responding to this kind of common story? Yeah, there's so much <laughs> in there that I have issues with. Um, <laughs> just the whole notion of addiction. Uh, there's a lot of people in the media and in public in the public policy world uh, equate addiction and dependency. They don't realize there's a big difference between the developing a physiological dependency on a particular drug, which, you know, is when if you if if you abruptly stop it, you can have sometimes depending on the drug, fatal possibly fatal withdrawal symptoms because your your physiology is adjusted to the presence of a drug. That's a dependency. That's not necessarily addiction because as we talked about, addiction is when um, is, is is continued use despite negative consequences. So, but we see that all the time. So I'll, in my own practice, I'll have patients say to me uh, when we're discussing an elective operation, well, what pain medicine were you planning to prescribe for me? Because when I was in the hospital, uh, I was in the hospital for two months with a big accident a few years ago. And I, uh, I, was, I became addicted to oxycodone. It took me 
two months to come off of that stuff. And boy, was that hell. I don't want to go through that again. And I tell them, well, you really had become physically dependent on it because if you were addicted on it, then you wouldn't have gotten off it and say, I don't want to do that again. Yeah, right. It's like you're, someone's coming to you and saying, there are these drugs that somehow they believe that they have this ineluctable draw to them. And they're saying, I took them and they did their job and then and I didn't like it, so I stopped. Right. There's so that's be more practical and common sense than that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I also used to, I point out to people, um, for example, let's take the class of drugs, beta blockers, mm-hmm. which commonly prescribed for things like high blood pressure, for example, or cardiovascular right. issues, or even for migraines for some people. But when you've been on them for a length of time, you can't just abruptly stop them. You could have fatal withdrawal symptoms. You could you could have a stroke. You could have a hypertensive crisis, so or a cardiac, a heart arrhythmia. So would anybody? I don't think anybody would presume to say I'm addicted to beta blockers. I'm addicted to you know a tenol ball. No, they don't say that. They say my doctor told me I, if 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 I want to stop this, we're going to have to come up with a tapering regime, or I can have a fatal reaction. The, the notion of addiction doesn't even enter their mind. But when it comes to opioids, that same exact situation is thought of as addiction. So number one, we got We have people in, in both in the media and in public policy world who don't realize there's a big difference. Uh, number two, as I'm sure you're aware, the uh, actual addiction as defined, as we've defined in the early part of this conversation, addiction is actually very low. Um, Depending on whose study you read, it could be, it's anywhere from less than 1% to maybe a few percent. Um, a recent study, when it comes to the management of acute pain, a recent really high-quality study came out about a year ago. It was published in the BMJ. It was formerly called the British Medical Journal by researchers at Harvard and Johns Hopkins. They followed uh, 568,000 post-operative patients in the Aetna database uh, between the years 2008 and 2016, who were given opioids for acute post-op pain. Um, and they found a total, what they call misuse rate. Now, misuse, is, as you know, is a whole spectrum. Uh, on one end is addiction. On the other end is, for example, you had leftover oxycodone from your hernia operation and you got a terrible toothache, so you took it for that. That's misuse under the definition. Yeah. So they have found a total misuse rate of 0.6%. Now, it's interesting, though, because another thing that happens is when once the narrative gets started, if you want to get published, you're much more likely to get published if you validate the narrative. That's the coin so, of the realm, right? To, to make the right, right noises. So uh, I remember I saw because uh, I get, you know, I get alerts about new studies coming out. And I saw an alert said uh, 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 refilling opioid prescriptions in post-op pain nearly doubles misuse rate. And I said, hmm, I got to look into this. Well, that's the study. So what they found is that people who got no refills had a misuse rate of 0.15%. People who got one refill after they used up their initial amount, they had a misuse rate of 0.29%. And the total misuse rate was 0.6%. So instead of having this, they probably wouldn't have gotten it published if they said study finds nearly nearly zero addiction rate associated with acute pain treatment with uh, prescription opioids, that would never have gotten published. But instead, they were kind of not lying. They nearly doubled <laughs> from 0.15 to 0.29. And then in the right there in the abstract, it said total was 0.6. So, so that's an acute situation. There are a lot of Cochrane systematic reviews, as I'm sure you're aware, Cochrane mm-hmm. 
systematic reviews are extremely rigorous. They're affiliated with the World Health Organization uh, that have looked at uh, the treatment of, uh, of uh, chronic pain patients with uh, long-term opioids. Uh, and they found roughly 1% people, of people fit the description of addiction. The other thing as a doctor that I've known for years is that actually when used, you know, for, as, as directed, opioids are extremely safe drugs. Unlike alcohol, they don't, they don't cause cirrhosis. They don't cause, they're not associated with cancers of the stomach and esophagus. They don't cause dementia like alcohol can do or pancreatitis. Um, uh, it really, I mean, there are some, from long-term use, there are some uh, uh, low incidences of certain things. Uh, you can get uh, decreased uh, sex hormone production, which could lead to things like osteoporosis. But these these are, you know, treatable situations. But they're not nearly as dangerous as as a lot of drugs that we use every day. As, for example, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which can destroy your kidneys. Tylenol can kill your liver. Uh Non-steroidals can also suppress your bone marrow, cause ulcers and bleeding. So um, opioids are actually safer than that. And, and the actual overdose rate of opioids, again, taken as directed, is extremely low. Um, depending, again, on who you read, it's anywhere from 0.01%. Jeff Myron, who's uh, the director of economic policy studies at the Cato Institute, he's also a director of graduate and undergraduate economic education at Harvard, he uh, was the lead author in a, in a study that came out from Cato in February this year where they, they found a 0.01% uh, overdose rate with opioids, roughly the same risk as taking like an aspirin a day for cardiovascular health. Mm. Um, but then a, another really good study was done a few years ago uh, in, uh, with the University of North Carolina in North Carolina, doc, uh, Dr. Das Gupta, where they followed for one year basically the entire population in North Carolina who were prescribed opioids, um, the 2.2 million patients, and they found uh, an overdose rate of 0.022%. But of those, uh, over 60% uh, had multiple other drugs in their systems, such as alcohol, uh, benzodiazepines, uh, right. and, and the like. And in fact, study after study has shown that uh, the majority of people who overdose from prescription opioids uh, these are people who are not not been using under medical direction. They've been non-medical users, and they almost always overdose because they've been using other drugs along with it, which are dangerous in combination. So that's number one. Just with that kind of background, when I hear these kind of hysterical things on, in the press, it always gets you know gets my back up. Yeah, well, you then, open you just open a new can of worms too. I, we should maybe just mention for a moment, or you're talking about how there's a a counter narrative. That's somewhat robust. I mean, it's not like studies haven't been done, but you sort of have to know how to look for truth in these studies. So what does it say? I mean, how should we feel that the the people we rely on to be sense-making institutions won't even accept, you know, an ostensibly a, a scientific paper or analysis if it doesn't make the right noises, if it doesn't, ge if it won't generate reasonable headlines, or if it makes us feel uncomfortable. Yeah, that, that well, that's a separate issue. In fact, that yeah. uh, John Ioannidis, a professor at Stanford uh, University, he wrote a paper on more than ten years ago. Now, where he, he looked at roughly fifty percent of the medical studies that came out this century were subsequently found to be wrong, and so there's a tendency, unfortunately, in the peer-reviewed medical literature now, for 
the editors of peer-reviewed journals to be more interested in generating headlines. And, you know, they, 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 they want to get, in the common parlance, they're looking for clicks. Yeah. Um, so if, if, you're, if your finding is going, to, is going to say something that is surely going to get attention, you're much more likely to get it published. And you're also seeing uh, a, a very, it's become very uncommon for people to try to do replicative studies, which used to be the benchmark of the scientific method. When somebody finds something, right. you, you want other people to see if they find the same thing because you want to know if maybe you're wrong. Prove but me wrong. Very few replicative yeah. studies right now in, in the scientific literature. Yeah. It's just, it's just nobody's interested in that. So getting back to the original. So first, right, right. <laughs> uh, the narrative right now is that um, these evil drug companies were behind convincing uh, doctors that opioids had a very low addiction potential when used in the medical setting and a very low overdose potential. And they hooked our young white middle-class people on opioids. And now look, now look at domestic creative. And it, it's understandable. People looking for simple explanations, they're always looking for a scapegoat for an easy explanation. But if you look at the action, if you really dig into it, first of all, throughout the, the seventies and eighties and into the nineties, there were numerous studies, not just that one so-called letter to the editor that you hear that all these time in the press, but numerous serious studies suggesting that we were under-medicating people for pain. I was trained in the 70s during the height of President Nixon's war on drugs. We were, we had it, we were indoctrinated into had indoctrinated to us that these drugs were dangerous. And so did the general public. So I can remember in the early 1980s making post-surgical rounds on my patients, and they would be visibly in pain, uh, rapid pulse, they look pasty, they're sweating, and I'd say, uh, did you let the nurse know you're in pain because I have morphine ordered for you? And they'd come back with, no, 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 I don't want to become addicted. And I said, don't worry about that. Just, you're not going to become addicted if you use it for this. Don't worry. Uh, so you had it on both sides of the bed. The doctor and the patient had this opiophobia. And so by the late 80s, early 90s, um, all of us were becoming convinced that we need to lighten up about this because we were under-medicating pain. We had this irrational fear of opioids. So... Um, even though the narrative is that we were convinced this by Purdue Pharma, for example, Purdue Pharma didn't even come out with OxyContin until 1996. Yeah, but yeah. during the 80s, we already had saw a surge in prescriptions of hydrocodone and oxycodone because we were starting to get the message that we need to overcome this irrational fear. There was even and, uh, some litigation against doctors for underprescribing uh, opioids at that time. Right. Right there. Yeah. Right. Now, a lot of doctors who are not into this issue like I am, a lot of them, they really feel almost like they're getting whiplash. I, I hear this from them more yeah. you know, I run into them in the lounge at the hospital. They say, you know, first they're yelling at me for not treating pain. Now they're yelling at me for treating pain. I don't know what to do. And I'm hearing, reading these stories in the papers, guys getting arrested. Uh, some of them are being sentenced to life in prison. I'm, I'm just afraid to prescribe anything now. That's what I'm hearing. And we're seeing that. It's, this is really impacting patients. And I can understand, you know, their bewilderment and fear. And in fact, you know, I'm, I'm nervous too. I'm, I'm being watched by these same prescription drug monitoring boards as all my other colleagues are. So, so anyway, they, they come up with this narrative. But meanwhile, if you look at the data, and I invite people to go um, in a journal of pain research in February of this year, I published a paper along with Jacob Sullum, who's a senior editor of Reason Magazine, and uh, Dr. Michael Shatman, who's a professor at Tufts University. Um, and uh, this, this is a peer-reviewed medical journal where we looked at the data uh, that's provided by the, the CDC as well as the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. 
And without getting too much into the weeds, we basically, the data showed that as long as the national survey has been taken so far, past months, non-medical use of what they call prescription pain reliever by persons age 12 and up was basically has been basically unchanged, a stable, relatively flat line since they started taking this in 2002. And also past year diagnosed with what they call prescription pain reliever use disorder. They later changed that to opioid use disorder. Again, flat line. So meanwhile, during, the, during that lengthy period, starting going back to 2002, first the volume of prescription opioids per 100 population doubled during that period. Then, because of the interventions, mainly by the government that decided that we were over-prescribing, since 2012, the prescription volume peaked, and it's come down, a high dose has come down over 60% since then. So meanwhile, if you look at what's happened, uh, the, again, the non-medical use and the uh, pain relief use disorder numbers have been unaffected by any of this stuff. But we've seen uh, the overdose rate skyrocket. And so... I've been saying all along that there's a, a, a population of people. I mean, I'm, you, know, you can come up with anecdotes about somebody who broke his leg and then was prescribed oxycodone for his pain. And then he ended up starting using it when he didn't need it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and no doubt there are those anecdotes. But the, the great majority uh, of people who are uh, dying from overdoses are non-medical users who who are using uh, these drugs in the underground market, almost always with other drugs as well, such as cocaine, alcohol, benzodiazepines, um, during the early part of this century and the late part of the last century, the preferred drug that they were using was what we call diverted prescription painkillers. And as a doctor, by the way, if somebody came up to me and said, what, I'm, I'm going to be using recreationally a drug, I could use this bottle of oxycodone that I stole from my grandmother's medicine cabinet, or I could use this little bag of, of heroin that this guy sold me. What would you prefer I use, doctor? I'm going to use one of them. I'd say, use that prescription pain bottle because mm -hmm. I know what's in there. You don't know what's in that bag of heroin you bought. So just from a, you know, from a purely doc a doctor's standpoint, caring about people not dying, uh, it was actually better that they were using diverted prescription pharmaceutical-grade prescription opioids. So once we decided that it was the prescription opioids that were the source of the problem and started clamping down on the prescriptions, that just made the non-medical users migrate to the next thing. So first they started migrating to heroin and now uh, heroin and fentanyl. But fentanyl, to my understanding, and from what I've been reading about this, and there's been a lot of good work done about this, I'm sure you know by Dr. Dan Ciccaroni yeah, yeah. at the UCSF, it's mainly viewed as a contaminant by most heroin users right. um, and also by uh, cocaine users. Um, so, but now we got the, the, that's the predominant cause. In fact, in 2017, 75% of all opioid related overdose deaths were either heroin or fentanyl. And uh, if you, uh, uh, if you want to know what percentage were prescription pain relievers that did not involve other drugs, such as heroin, fentanyl, cocaine, alcohol, et cetera, it came in at less than 10%. And that's all in our paper that was in the Journal of Pain Research. So now, of course, nobody's talking about this, but there's a new, what some people call a fourth wave, which is methamphetamine and stimulants. That's back. Back in 2011, the CDC reported on roughly 1,800 overdose deaths related to methamphetamine. 
In 2017, it was up to 10,000. But didn't we cure that back in 2005 when we made Sudafed behind the counter? Oh, wait. So the, uh, I think what's going on is that this has nothing to do. Yeah, it has to, as doctors prescribe more prescription opioids, then more prescription opioids became available for diversion into the black market. And also, as we made, um, rationally, we made people overcome this irrational fear of opioids that may have made some experimenters less afraid of experimenting with opioids because they, they had heard positive things about it. So that was part of it. But I think this is more of a socio-cultural phenomenon going on. And in fact, I was very uh, gratified to see uh, that validating my suspicion uh, in September, exactly one year ago, actually, September 2018, a study came out from the University of Pittsburgh Graduate School of Public Health. And uh, uh, I was uh, lucky to get the dean of the Graduate School of Public Health, who was the, the uh, supervising author of that paper. He spoke at our harm reduction conference at Cato in March. They were able, it was very difficult because the terminology was constantly changing, but they, they were able to dig into CDC numbers going back into the 70s. And what they've concluded, and I, I commend to, you, to any of the listeners here to try to, to go there and get that study. It was published in Science, the journal Science, September 2018. The lead author was uh, Jalal, J-A-L-A-L. Uh, and uh, Donald Burke was the supervising author, and um, B-U-R-K-E. They found that um, the overdose rate has been on a steady exponential increase since the 70s. And there's no evidence of any deviation from that exponential uh, line. The only thing that's changed over the decades is which particular drugs come in and out of vogue. So that in the 1970s uh, it was, and, and early 80s, heroin was the number one cause. Then cocaine-related deaths. Then hydrocodone and Vicodin, then other prescription opioids, then heroin, now heroin and fentanyl. Now stimulants are, are starting to come to the forefront. Um, and so that they concluded that this overdose crisis was already in progress before it was ever recognized and associated with prescription pain relievers. And it's just following the same, you know, the train is going at the same speed down the railroad tracks um, and that we need to look for other reasons why more and more people are engaging in uh, either recreational or self-medicational drug use. I think a lot of people may be self-medicating. Of course, we get right back full circle to what we were talking about earlier, is if they're self-medicating, by, by having it prohibited, we're just making that self-medication more dangerous to them. And who are we to tell them that they must stop self-medicating if, if, if that's helping them or they, they, they're happy with it? Yeah. So if I just if I could summarize, we have this idea that opioids are the problem in the first place. You know, once you get to that idea, it's almost impossible to ask, hey, what if opioids aren't the problem? You know, it's very difficult to say that without opening a can of worms that leads us into a, a complex conversation. On one hand, if we think by opioid crisis, we mean that it's a, a crisis of addiction. What you're saying is that, we're, you know, the conditions for which that addiction is and people are vulnerable of addiction in a societal level. Those were there. And so drug or no drug that was happening. We're also going through these waves of drugs that are perceived to be the culprit of fatalities. Although that's a very difficult stew to move around in because we, we a lot of 
drug fatalities, I think almost all, I have not seen any reliable data, if you go back to uh, coroner reports, that really people using opioids, at, not even as prescribed, are using only opioids and, and dying that way. Um, so we have people dying of drug mixtures and people dying of adulterated drug market. And so I would call that, of course, drug poisoning. I would hardly call that an overdose. And all we're doing is high, playing hide the ball. You know, we're talking about one drug being the culprit and then another drug or one scapegoat and then another. I don't disagree with anything you said, although I think I don't know if you meant to say this. I don't think we've had an addiction crisis because, again, I think a, a, a lot of the overdose deaths are not people who are addicted. They're people who are not medical users who are using well, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not. substances uh, like contaminated, for example, with unknown quantities of fentanyl. Sure, sure. No, I'm not. I'm not. By no means am I conflating drug deaths with drug addiction. Actually, I'm trying to keep them distinct. So yeah, that's that's what I mean. If the per, if the perception is that we have an addiction crisis, we could ta- we can talk about that, and it's just the conditions for which addiction might be something that happens at a societal level. That's there already. You know, that's not drug dependent. And then when we talk about drugs and drug fatalities, there's a complicated set of reasons why people are are dying of drug fatalities. And to your point, is that not all these people dying are addicted to drugs? These could be people. This could be part of that 80 to 90 percent you mentioned of people who, if they take drugs and they, they know that they can stay safe taking the drugs, well, they'll use it with no real problem. But that only happens if people can stay alive long enough. Yeah, so at the end of the day, we really have, if you want to call something a crisis, we have a prohibition crisis. Because a lot of this drug use would be a whole lot safer if it was in an open legal market as opposed to in the underground. Uh, it, the perfect example is, uh, you know, Prince, the, the famous uh, musical artist, mm-hmm. learned, I think it was about a year ago now, um, he liked to use Vicodin, hydrocodone. Um, and he had his, he, according to the coroner's report, he never once went to a doctor, so he never obtained a prescription for right, this. Right. That's what he liked to use. I happen to have uh, a relative who just pops in a Vicodin in his mouth every once in a while because he likes the feeling he gives him. It gives him. Um, so anyway, he apparently, through his source, got what he thought was Vicodin. It turns out it was counterfeit Vicodin. Right. Yeah. It was made with a pill press out of fentanyl. And that's why he overdosed. So as far as we know, he wasn't addicted. He was a, a, a non-medical or recreational user, and he was poisoned. So again, if you really want to find something to blame, and I've written articles about this, if you want to some, blame somebody, I mean, you, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to, to, to um, defend the pharmaceutical company's marketing techniques. They're not sympathetic figures that's not what I'm, I don't want to be misconstrued as being like a show for them or anything like that. But I'm just saying you're, you're deluding yourself. When I say yourself, I'm talking about the people who are doing this. If you think that they caused this and that extracting money from them is going to solve the problem, all you're going to do is maybe further your career in politics um, and, you know, get a couple of scalps and, and maybe feel better short term. And also in the process, maybe make it harder for people who need pain medicine to get pain medicine because a lot of the the pharmaceutical companies is going to get out of that business. It's too risky. Uh, But in the meantime, you're looking at the wrong cause. The cause is prohibition. There's a separate thing going on, which is it seems as if there are more and more people, percentage-wise, as a percentage of the population who are engaging in 
either self-medication or recreational uh, drug use. Um, and that's a separate question. We could ask ourselves, why is that? And is that even necessarily bad? But what's making it deadly is prohibition. Let me put it in this context. At the end of the day, there's no realistic way. If there were, then there would be no ethical way to rid people of their desire to change their states of mind, nor their desires to take drugs in order to achieve that mind state. And so you've said previously that what's left in terms of measurable outcome that we should want is the reduction of harm, drug-related harm in this case. Definitely. And I, I really I really think that it's probably uh, a human trait to want to alter you know, your consciousness from time to time. I mean, you even read Homer talked about opium. Um, you know, since as far as we could tell, different, even this day, some hunter-gatherer civilizations, they come up with mind-altering drugs and, and even some animals, right? Um, you know, cats like catnip. I think, isn't there some sort of, I forget the name of it, the weed that horses like? I think a lo- they call it local weed, I think. Oh, I don't but, know, probably. <laughs> but, but, you know, at least, at least as far as I know, mammals, I can't yeah. say other types of life forms, but there seems to be evidence that mammals enjoy altering their consciousness from time to time. It's, you know, instead of fighting that, if you're really concerned, the, the reason people should be concerned about the overdose crisis is because people are dying. That's what they should be worrying about. That's what they should be upset about, that, that people are dying. They shouldn't yes. be upset that people are engaging in a behavior that they personally don't approve of or don't do. That's irrelevant. If you're really concerned, if you really claim to be a humanitarian, then your concern should be that people are dying. Right. And there's some simple things you could do to make that less likely to happen, and that's harm reduction. You're considering drug decriminalization as a sort of societal policy form of harm reduction. Right, and it's working in places like Portugal, for sure. example. Uh, obviously, uh, there's their political realities. So ideally, legalization would be better than decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Decriminalization is still dealing with technically illegal substances. So uh, you're still having to obtain them on an underground market. You can't necessarily be sure of what's in it. Uh, and you, you have no recourse if it turns out that you would dealt harm by what you bought. But at least all of the resources that are going into right now locking these people up are, are going to go into making it more readily available for them to get a harm yeah, reduction. Yeah. And people could more openly share information about safe usage and things like that. But legalization is even better because with legalization, like I gave the example before, when you go buy a pack of cigarettes or a pack of a bottle of liquor, it's legal. So you're not worried that it's laced with something. I think you and I, we were agreeing that pharmaceutical industries, on the other hand, by going after them, suing them, we're chasing the wrong dog. But when you relate it all to the reduction of harm, if you, if that's our, if that's our goal and, and wanted outcome, it seems like the whole idea of suing drug companies is actually in a totally different universe in terms of desired outcome. We kind of know that we're not reducing harm by going after them. So that pushes maybe, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but more of a vindictive one. Like we want justice served. You know, it's an understandable human reaction, isn't it? I mean, you you see that in a lot of situations. So I could understand it. And also people want simple explanations and simple like, this is the bad guy and this is the good guy. But actually, they may ultimately be doing more harm because, like I say, they may be driving the pharmaceutical companies out of the pain medicine business right. because they want to take a chance. And then people are going to suffer. Another way in which 
they've done harm is, and I, I had a policy analysis come out on this back in uh, February 2018 called Abuse Deterrent Opioids and the Law of Unintended Consequences. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, now this, again, has a lot to do, is a com- it's a combination of things. So regulatory policies are patent laws and the zeitgeist right now. So in 2010, OxyContin was about to lose its patent and a bunch of um, generics were about to come on board. And by this time, it was, you know, quite, a, there was a, it was in the front pages about the overdose crisis. So uh, Purdue came out with a, uh, an abuse deterrent formulation that couldn't be crushed if you wanted to crush it to snort it. Right, yeah. And if you wanted to dissolve it to inject it, you couldn't do that either because mm-hmm. of the gelatinous and, and not suitable. And uh, so they came out with this abuse deterrent opioid. The FDA approved it. That allowed them to extend their patent because they had a substantial modification to their product, their formulation, which kept them in a sort of monopoly situation. <laughs> right. Those are the way the patent laws work. And this is with a lot of things, including EpiPen. They know how so to stay relevant. That. Yeah. Um, but uh, so, so meanwhile, what we've learned, and there have been a, a number of very convincing uh, studies on this, um, there's basically, with the advent of abuse deterrent OxyContin, um, non-medical users of diverted OxyContin just migrated right over to heroin. In fact, uh, one group of researchers out of, uh, I think, Notre Dame and Boston University, uh, and I, I cite them in my policy analysis, they found a one-to-one substitution of heroin for abuse deterrent OxyContin. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, the FDA and, and all of the people in the policy world have encouraged the opioid manufacturers to make more of them. So we're seeing more and more abuse deterrent formulations come online and the pharmaceutical companies is great. You're giving me a reason to extend my patent. I love this. So they're happy to oblige. And in, in many states, uh, legislatures are passing laws saying that you have to fill the abuse deterrent formulation. That's the only type you could fill if a patient is prescribed an opioid. Well, that means that the patient's got to pay more for the opioid because, and this is a patient who wasn't really interested in snorting it or injecting it, but they got to pay more for it, even if they don't want an abuse deterrent formulation, because it's the only kind they can get. In the meantime, again, it's not the people who are using it to treat their pain, they're not in any way being benefited by these abuse deterrent formulations coming online. Right. But the non medical users, they just, they've already moved on. They're not even using that anymore. They're using heroin and fentanyl. They've, you know, we're fighting the last war. So culturally, yeah. we're suffering from a, a focusing illusion over and over again. Right. We're always like a couple of a couple of drugs behind. Right. <laughs> so, so we're trying to, again, continue to restrict prescription pain pills. In fact, the governor of my state about a few weeks ago issued a press release boasting that since they put in their opioid policy in Arizona, they've gotten prescriptions down, I think, 18 percent. Big deal. The overdose rate's gone up. Right, right. So they're focusing on prescription painkillers and, you know, prescription painkillers as being a a major component of the overdose numbers began to fade, what, seven years ago already? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. I've given up on trying to convince people who are just on a crusade against drug companies that they're doing the wrong thing. You know, the best I almost the best I can do is harm reduction with respect to bad ideas there. Look, get your justice served if that's what you think is going to happen. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But you might ask yourself, by yourself, I mean the collective, how much energy do you want to spend 
with this kind of an outcome versus the kind of energy you might want to spend making sure that you're really uh, reducing the harms that are involved in in the problems you're you're worried about. Yeah, as long as we talk about harm reduction, if there's a way to kind of get, I don't know if you wanted to go on this topic. Yeah, but there, there. Uh, I, when I'm in Washington on behalf of the Cato Institute, I um, oftentimes I, I get meetings with different legislative staffers, and they're looking for kind of politically doable uh, harm reduction. Uh, interventions that could could be that they could push yeah. that are politically realistic, and there are a couple of things that to me are low hanging fruit. First of all, naloxone availability. So it's it's a prescription drug, according to the FDA. Um, to this day, it's still a prescription only drug, and uh, now every one of the fifty states has come up with some sort of workaround where either they have allowed right. the pharmacist to be the prescriber because the states could still dis- legally decide who prescribes or the state medical director who happens to be a physician gives a standing order to pharmacists saying, if a person comes up to you and wants it, I'll be the prescribing doctor and give it to them. Meanwhile, the FDA itself for a few years now has said, you know, this is suitable for use by non-trained, you know, non-professional people. First responders are using it. We're distributing it to all sorts of caregivers. It's ripe for making over the counter. We invite the manufacturers to petition us to make it over the counter. And because even though you can get it this way, because of the stigma attached with opioid use, a lot of people don't avail themselves of going up to the pharmacy counter and saying, I'm on opioids, could I have naloxone? Yeah. Uh, for that reason, they made it over the counter in Australia and in Italy. Well, the pharmaceutical companies have not petitioned, but according to the law, the commissioner doesn't have to wait for them to petition. He could just say, I'm moving this over the counter. Or Congress can do that, but nobody's doing that. Also, when it comes to medication-assisted treatment, uh, we have this thing called the X waiver, where doctors have to take this eight-hour course and get and are given quotas on how many patients they could treat with medication-assisted treatment using buprenorphine. Um, yet, you know, they could prescribe much more potent um opioids without having to get a waiver and do an eight-hour course. In other countries like uh, in Europe, particularly France, doctors who are interested in treating people for uh, opioid use disorder just start writing prescriptions for buprenorphine. They don't need to get an X waiver. So we can get rid of the. And there actually are two bipartisan bills in Congress right now that would get rid of the X waiver. So that's another thing that we could do. And then when it comes to uh, methadone treatment, which has been around since the 60s, and is probably the least controversial of medication-assisted treatment. We have these archaic rules where the DEA is regulating the methadone clinics, and the person has to come and take it in your presence because obviously if you're an addict, you're evil and cannot be trusted. You're manipulative, so you have to take it in front of them. And if you're living in a remote area, you can't drive 100 miles each way to come take your methadone. Um, And uh, not only that, but the regulations are so strict that few there are much fewer clinics than there could be. But in the UK, in Canada, um, in Australia, and, and in France, since the 1970s, any doctor, any primary care physician who's interested in treating people with opioid use disorder with methadone could just do it. They don't have to have a clinic. They can write a prescription for them. And the irony of it is methadone is, is a well-known painkiller. It was invented by the Germans in the 1930s. And when I have, uh, let's say, a cancer patient in a hospital room having trouble controlling their pain, there's no problem with me prescribing methadone for that. 
So right. have it. Right. It's t- perfectly legal. I just can't prescribe methadone for withdrawal On management. On the basis of, for, right, right. You know, and there's a problem there, too. The fact is, we seem to be just so incapable of changing our attitudes around what we think about drugs. Like in the case of methadone and suboxone, of buprenorphine, you know, we should be able to think about those drugs as drugs that people can take if they choose. And if the reason that they choose to do it is because they can't do other drugs legally or in some sort of a consistent way. So uh, that's one thing, but just we wrap it up in this disease concept. So sometimes it's not that, well, you're a drug user, you're evil and you can't be trusted. It's more like uh, you're a drug user, you're hijacked and you can't be trusted. Not that you're a bad guy, no hard feelings. It's just that, you know, we know you're diseased. I see no way uh, forward or ignoring if we're going to be serious about reducing harms. um, that We really do need more laissez-faire drug laws across the board. I know you're talking about incremental steps. I'm just, you know, saying that while it's on my mind. It's like, yeah, but I'm yeah. just saying, I get asked by staffers, of senators and representatives, sure. what can you do? Well, yeah, you know, no, I say, yeah. well, here's something that should be relatively non-controversial that you could do. It's kind of waiting for you to do it. That's, right. So that's what I'm saying. I know. I, I, what I mean is that that makes so much sense to me that it's almost like, God, does he really need to, did you really need to explain that to them? Then again, what I see is someone like you thoughtfully explaining this concept to someone like a senator asking, what can I do in terms of harm reduction? I always worry that without a complete change overhaul in attitudes or change in drug laws, that we take a concept so common sense and harm reduction based as prescribing buprenorphine, methadone, and we turn that into, we have our own focusing illusion there. It's like, Okay, now we're doing harm reduction because we're people are taking these drugs and it's curing them, rather than we're doing harm reduction because this is a drug that people want and they should be able to get it, and that's that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 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 No, I know I it completely. That like it gets back to what we were saying earlier on, which is uh, you know we we it, we it's in our culture, I think, where we feel when people yeah have addiction to certain drugs, not all drugs, certain yeah. drugs. Then you must get treated. So I'm I'm great at eating up time with incredible guests and indulging in my own most pressing interests. <laughs> but while I have you, and uh, while there's still a bit of time, anything that you'd like to discuss that we haven't so far? I'm sure there's a million things. Well, I'd like uh, people to know about a couple of conferences that are coming up at the Cato Institute that I organized. Yeah, please. I'm up for anything. And mention those and mention uh, ways to find them and links and stuff like that, and I'll put them all in the show notes. Okay. If, if you want to, first of all, if you want to... Uh, see all the work that my colleagues and I have done on this and other issues at the Cato Institute, Cato Institute website is cato.org. Um, and if you go uh, onto that webpage, up at the top, you'll see the word events. And if you click on events, it tells you about upcoming events. Now, these are all held, they're all free attendance, and they're held at our auditorium in Washington. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not everybody can fly to Washington for all these events, but Fortunately, they're also live streamed, so you could register to live stream it. Then, then shortly after that, they're archived, so you could watch it if your schedule didn't allow you to be there to live stream it. So one that's coming up on October 3rd that, I, that I've organized is called um, Patients, Privacy, and PDMPs. Uh, and the subtitle is Exploring the Impact of Prescription Drug Monitoring Programs. And we're going to have uh, David Fink from Columbia University 
a school of public health who recently did a really uh, important uh, systematic review of PDMPs um, that suggests that while they may have gotten prescriptions down, they may have actually driven heroin use and crime and overdose rates up. Uh, then we're going to have uh, Kate Nicholson, who I'm sure a lot of you listeners are familiar with. Oh, yeah. Pain patient advocate. She's yeah. going to discuss the impact this may have, have maybe having on people who need to be treated for pain. And then we're going to have um, Nathan Wessler of the ACLU New York office, who's they've actually filed an amicus brief in a case in New Hampshire, where they believe that uh, law enforcement trawling the, the, the prescription drug database looking for bad guys amounts to uh, a warrantless search and is a violation of the Fourth Amendment. We'll discuss mm -hmm. that and privacy issues. And then our fourth speaker is going to be uh, Dr. Uh, Patience Moyo, who's of the Brown University School of Public Health. And uh, uh, she's an expert on PDMPs and has consulted a lot on that. She's going to kind of give her overview and, and react to the other speakers. Uh, and then we'll have a Q&A. That goes from noon to 1.30 Eastern time on October 3rd. Then on December 5th, uh, which happens to be coincidentally, actually, I don't, not coincidentally, uh, that's repeal day. That's the anniversary of the repeal of Prohibition, December 5th. Um, we're going to have uh, a forum where we're going to be sitting around. Uh, it's going to be less formal. We're going to be sitting around sort of in a semicircle having a conversation that I'm going to moderate called Is It the Drug? Rethinking Conventional Views of uh, Drug Use, Abuse, and Addiction. And um, uh, we're gonna, it's going to feature Jacob Sullum, who wrote, among other things, saying yes in defense of drug use. And he's cataloged a lot of people who uh, are non-medical users of, of uh, illicit drugs and are very happy and leading a, a happy life, as well as addicts who are uh, functioning and, and happy. Uh, we're also going to have... Um, uh, Mitch Earlywine, who's a very well-known cannabis researcher, he's a professor of psychology at SUNY Albany. Um, Joycelyn Elders, uh, some of you, some people who are listening who are old enough to remember, she was a Surgeon General of the United States in the early 1990s, and she's a professor emeritus right now at the University of Arkansas, yeah. a pediatrician by training, and she's also on the advisory boards of the Drug Policy Alliance and I think the Harm Reduction Coalition. Mm -hmm. One of the earlier people in high standing in Washington to call for decriminalization. Uh, and then we're going to have Stanton Peel, well known to you, of course, Zach. <laughs> and so we're going to have a wide range. Oh, oh I, I forgot. And, and Dr. Kim Sue, who used to be with uh, at, at uh, Harvard, now she's in New York at the Harm Reduction Coalition there. And she's a, 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 an MD and a harm reduction advocate and treats patients. And uh, we're going to have just kind of a wide range of discussion, sort of like we just had, examining, uh, you know, what is addiction? How should it be approached? Why do we treat approach certain uh, drug use differently than other drug use? And, and get into all these kind of things, harm reduction and that kind of stuff. It's going to be more of a kind of informal conversation. So that's coming up on December 5th. Again, if you can't be there, you could live stream it. Um, and then uh, other people at Cato Institute have done a lot of work on the drug issue. Uh, Jeff Myron was doing it way before I joined the Cato Institute, M-I-R-O-N. You could uh, look, just look for his bio page and my bio page. If you click under experts on the website, it'll show you all of the different uh, scholars there, including me. We're in alphabetical order. You just click on the, the, the scholar you're interested in and it has all the links to all of their work. 
So you have my work there, but also Jeff Myron. Trevor Burris has done a lot of, he's in the criminal justice uh, department. He's done a lot of work on the drug war issues as well. Um, so there are a lot of people there besides me who've done a lot of work on this. Way back, uh, one of the first people, he was commissioned by us to do a really deep analysis of uh, Portugal's uh, decriminalization was, uh, and you could get that on our website, was uh, um, Glenn Greenwald. He did that for us back, I, I think it was 10 years ago now. A link to everything relevant, I think, I'll be able to link to everything in the show notes. And if I don't, you know where to find me and you can you can come hassle me. Dr. Jeffrey Singer, um, I'm so happy that I've discovered you and your work. And while you're doing a lot of work and a lot of really important work, and I love the way that you think about these issues and not just the way that you think about them as a good libertarian individual, but the way you're, that you're networking and, and making a lot of voices and bringing them to the, the, to the forefront. I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to speak with me and to listeners today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Let's do it again soon. Yes, let's keep in touch. <laughs>